Good evening, everyone, and thank you very much for coming. There's really not much uh, left for me to say, uh, but I would also like to express my thanks to all involved, and crucially, I want to introduce tonight's speaker. When we thought about the launch, we quickly decided that we wanted the exhibition and the objects to talk for themselves. We decided that what we really wanted was a speaker who would add another layer, another, a different, a personal perspective on migration, material culture, memory, and identity. We have thought long and hard who that speaker could be, and it was Erica Carter from King's College London who suggested Inge Weber, Newt, and I think we could hardly have found someone better suited to the task. One thing that was really very gratifying about this project was that we found wonderful collaborators uh, along the way who went out of their way to contribute to it, the Studio Sachs, Julia, Elena, and finally, Inge. Inge immediately took to the project and came up uh, with ideas and a perspective of her own and exactly what we were looking for. Inge has taught German language and literature and aspects of 20th century Germany since 1988. Prior to that, she taught at various institutions for adult education in Germany at Chulalongkorn University and the Goethe Institute in Bangkok, Thailand, and at the University of Central England and Metropolitan University London. So she knows about migration, about what it means to be an expat from first-hand experience. She's now newly retired, but um, as it is in the life of an academic, you never really retire, and so she works as a research fellow at King's College London at Reading University. Inge is an expert on migration and especially on German migration to Britain, acculturation, language, identity, and memory. She has co-edited several major books in this field, the wonderfully titled Labour and Love, Deutsche in Großbritannien nach dem Zweiten Weltkrieg, 2000, European Immigrants in Britain, 1933 to 1950, came out in 2003, Beyond Camps and Forced Labour, Current International Research on Survivors of Nazi Persecution in 2005, and German Migrants in Postwar Britain, 2006. You can find all these books in the class case uh, next door and can look at it during the reception. We're much looking forward to her talk tonight on home, uh, home ties, objects in migrants' lives. So without further ado, Inge, the floor is yours. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Tobias, for these kind words of introduction. Uh, thank you also for inviting me to speak about German migrants and things they keep when they move from one country to the other. Um, I think I should perhaps reveal straight away what I took when I came to this country in my first spell in the 80s. It was a feather duvet, <laughs> quite a large object, but it kept me warm and comfortable for a long time. So... Um, it's a known fact that people have always moved from place to place for various reasons, and in that process they have taken things with them. Objects that were expected to be useful to them in their new home, but also things that would comfort them and remind them of the place they'd left behind. These things are closely related to the people who own, who own them and who can carry very powerful stories of their lives their experience, emotions, and identities. Yet, for a long time, 
there was very little interest in this connection. Today we can notice a turn towards a strong interest in material objects and their context as a way to learn about history, such as evident in Neil McGregor's celebrated approach, A History of the World in a Hundred Objects, and his Germany Memories of a Nation project. At the same time, we can observe that cities and towns have started to honor their migrant populations in special exhibitions. Examples of this trend are the Migration Museum in the East End of London, the pop-up exhibition about the Anglo-German relations, which took place recently in this house, the online exhibition at the Imperial War Museum, which tells the stories of the Jewish children who came to Britain on the kinder transport, and this is supported by the objects they brought with them. In Germany, there is the relatively new museum for immigration, the Auswanderungshaus in Bremerhaven, which tells us about the experiences of the millions of migrants who started their transatlantic migration to the USA in the 19th and 20th century. And of course, there is the much-discussed exhibition at the Deutsches Historisches Museum in Berlin, which pays tribute to the experiences of the many refugees and expellees from the formerly German territories 70 years ago. This present exhibition sits very well with the new awareness of the material culture in migration, and yet it differs. The objects we see here belong to individuals who are part of a fairly recent and modern migration to Britain. The new migrants have come under very different conditions compared with previous movements, and they are part of a very different community. Despite their high number, estimated well over 100,000, they are a fairly invisible community with a strong concentration in London, but scattered over different boroughs, perhaps with a tendency of families settling around the German school in Richmond. There is hardly a pattern regarding the Germans in Britain today. Apart from the fact that they are predominantly well-educated and come to a country which shows similar socioeconomic features to Germany, they come for a variety of reasons. Sometimes as au pair to improve their language, or to further their academic studies at British universities. Some look for professional challenges in an internationally oriented market. Some are sent as expatriates from German companies or football clubs. Others want to widen their horizons in a different culture or being inspired by the creative vibes of the city. Contemporary Germans in Britain don't fit a single narrative. What they share, however, is that they are part of a mobile, globalized, and interconnected world in which travel has become widely affordable and fast. Contact to friends and family back in Germany can be established easily. Consumer goods and material objects are similar, and thanks to shops like Apple, Aldi, or Zara, they are sometimes even identical. Previous German migrations to Britain showed very different features. And by implication, 
influence the choices people made when leaving or taking material things with them. Rather than preempting the objects of this exhibition, I would now like to take you on a mini excursion into some of the more recent historical migration movements. I will draw on examples of my own research on Germans in Britain, my own experience as a migrant, examples from my own family, and examples from talking to other migrants. I hope to show that choices about things we take and keep are very personal and a reflection of ourselves, of our individual biographies. But at the same time, they are an expression of the zeitgeist, the spirit of time, the place and the circumstances under which the migrations took place. The objects sometimes change their quality in the process of migration, and it may even turn out that we don't really know why we took them. In any case, objects we take are usually kept for a reason. To others, they may appear numb, trivial, or soulless, but to their owners, they carry the meanings they've attached to them as they represent the memories of places and people left behind, they are the ties between our past and our present. This applies to the things we see here at this exhibition and the things I'm going to touch upon now. Apart from being a German migrant to London myself, I also come from a long line of Germans who moved within Europe. My ancestors were part of the 15,000 Protestants from Salzburg who were asked by Friedrich Wilhelm, also known as the Soldatenkönig, to settle in Lithuania in the early 18th century in order to boost the population that was decimated by the plague. I can only imagine what they chose to take with them on their long journey north to start a new life out there. It may have been tools to clear the land, to turn the soil, and to build shelter. Perhaps also seed grains, plants, perhaps a few domestic animals, needles and thread, and most probably a Bible. But I don't know. I do know, however, what they took with them when they, as ethnic Germans, had to leave Lithuania for good and went westward to escape the advancing Red Army at the end of World War II. Apart from consumables like bread, potatoes, meat and preserves, they, they put warm clothing, bedding, blankets and tablecloths into their chests. A couple of these woolen blankets, linen pillowcases and tablecloths survived the legendary flight by horse and cart into Western Germany. I've prepared a couple of slides for you. I hope it will work. Yeah, these are my grandparents' blankets. The pillowcases. And the tablecloth that was produced in Lithuania, but embroidered immediately after the war by my grandmother. So these are now treasured items, even two generations down. They're the only surviving items the family have of the past, and as such, 
they represent continuity. They've also become the material symbols for the hard times my grandparents went through of being forcefully uprooted and displaced. They stand for a whole family narrative. You may have just wondered and asked yourself, why did they pack tablecloths? Isn't that the least important thing in those circumstances? Well, not for them. On the one hand, it was hoped that they would add beauty to a table in a potentially new home around which they would all gather together. On the other hand, the cloths carried a high spiritual value because they represented the intense involvement of the women in the production process. The flax seeds were sown, plants harvested in laborious manual processes, then crushed, cured, heckled before being spun into yarn and woven in a particular pattern by hand on a large loom into the tablecloth. Equally, the woolen blankets you've just seen. Their own sheep were shorn before the wool was spun and woven, again, using a traditional pattern that was typical for the region. The pieces have also become cultural artifacts which can tell a story of a rural lifestyle that does not exist anymore, at least not for the family. The only other thing that survived for a long time, although it was not taken consciously on the journey, was one of the wooden wheels from the cart with which they had fled. It probably was not even the original wheel, but a replacement, as the cart broke down a few times on its way. However, it meant so much to the generation of my grandparents, it became a strong symbol for their survival, loss and restart. Emotionally, they were not able to dispose of this wheel. Too much of their identity as refugees was projected onto the wheel. Now, having fulfilled its original purpose, the wheel found a new use as a decorative piece in the garden until it finally fell apart. Some objects don't survive, but their stories do. And here's an image of the wheel. There are about 20 years between the time when the photographs were taken. So there it was still intact. And this is about a few years ago. Particularly painful are the memories of the Jewish Germans who became victims of Nazi persecution and were forced to leave Germany. This was especially the case after 1938 when they had to organize their flight in great haste and secrecy. It often meant only taking money and objects chosen for their size and material value. If necessary, the objects also had to be turned into money or favors in order to survive possible hardship. I remember the story of a ring sewn into the hem of a coat. Here, the piece of jewelry was stripped of its original purpose of being worn and displayed openly now serving as a potential emergency currency. 
the German-speaking Jewish children on the Kindertransport were in a similar situation. Although the evacuation program was planned, luggage was restricted, and only the most necessary things could be taken in their suitcases. But most of them managed to take something personal with them, such as a set of family photos and a toy for comfort on the long journey to Britain. The number of dolls exhibited in various museums is striking. Perhaps no coincidence, as dolls were certainly the most popular toy for, the, for girls at the time, a mini version of the girls themselves, sometimes wearing the same clothes, the same hairstyles. But the dolls also represented a playmate and a quiet confidant with whom they could share their thoughts and feelings. Hence, these dolls became the life-like companions to the children who traveled into an unknown future without the uncertainty of seeing their parents ever again. The recent exhibition on Anglo-German relations displayed the doll that Edith Rothschild, a 14-year-old uh, old Jewish girl, brought with her when she left Germany in 1938. We then learn from the subtext that her mother Martha tried to convince her daughter that she shouldn't take the doll because, in her view, Edith was too old for dolls. However, Edith managed to smuggle the doll into her luggage despite her mother's concern. We also learn that her mother died and not survived the war. Inga Pollock's doll, displayed on the website of the, of the Imperial War Museum, dressed in a traditional Austrian dirndl, was a birthday present by her mother in 1938, and the mother perished in 1941. From Dame Stephanie Shirley, we learn that her doll got lost during the train journey, but miraculously reappeared later and is now on display at the V&A Childhood Museum in East London. Other objects which have been taken on this fateful journey, apart from dolls, have survived and are equally painful reminders of what they must have meant to the children. Herbert Kai, for example, made a choice, perhaps not immediately understandable, in taking ice skating boots with him. He must have been very attached to them, perhaps associating them with the pleasure of moving easily and freely but certainly expecting to use them in Britain. Ironically, this was not possible as he grew out of them too quickly. The drama of flight, however, not only becomes apparent in the stories about things people took, but also in the things they did not keep. And I quote, The piano, the furniture, the books we had, we couldn't take anything. Utterances like this express the loss of a whole bourgeois world, a topic that seemed to recur amongst the German-Jewish refugees. It not only emphasizes the intellectual profile of this group, but is also a collective expression of feeling declassed. The teacher who had to work as domestic help and the lawyer who had 
to work as a shop assistant are the well-known examples of the fact that German academic and professional qualifications were often not recognized in Britain and people felt stripped of their cultural capital and social status. Leaving behind the objects such as books and the piano became synonymous with losing their social identity and feeling of rejection, of non-recognition in their new country. In this sense, the objects left behind also represent a symbol of the migrants' reception in Britain. I mentioned my own family stories earlier. They resonate very much with those of the women I've researched. The young German women who were recruited immediately after the war, between 1947 and 51, to work in the British textile industry uh, in Yorkshire and in Lancashire. They were also recruited under the so-called North Sea Scheme to work as hospital auxiliaries and nurses for the newly founded NHS. And this is just an image of a woman in the textile industry, and this is a flyer, um, a recruitment flyer that was published immediately after the war. So the women were often refugees from the former Eastern territories or came from bombed out cities like Hamburg, Berlin, or Dresden. It was mainly their economic need that brought them to Britain as guest workers. Accordingly, they had very little to take on their journey, mostly items of clothing, perhaps a family photo or, in, as in one case, a homemade picture of dried pressed flowers. But the items they took were remembered and some became instrumental in their personal narratives of home and migration. For example, a woman from East Prussia used the recycled German army uniform she had skillfully turned into a stylish suit as a way into talking about the deprived socioeconomic situation she had escaped in Germany. She said, wir waren ja damals so arm wie Kirchenmäuse. Through the suit, we learn about the difficult life she had faced as a refugee in post-war Germany and her feelings of inadequacy. Being able to earn enough money in order to buy food, good, good quality clothes and shoes and returning not poor but well-dressed had become a distinct ambition for her and other recruited women. The success of their migration to Britain would have in part been measured by things they took back on their return migration to Germany. Since the journey by train and boat from Germany to Britain was something special and expensive in those days, something one rarely undertook, well, until perhaps the 1960s at the earliest. Letters exchanged with their dearest became the most treasured link with those left behind. Often these letters were kept in neat little bundles, a reminder of everything home people and places. Regular exchanges of letters played the role of EasyJet smartphone Skyping and satellite TV today. A set of early letters written to the recruitment officer back in Germany survived and makes an interesting read. 
just an image. Perhaps not surprisingly, one of the recurring themes in these letters is the surprise about the different food in Britain. How unusual it was to eat white bread, which felt frivolous as it reminded them of cake, a luxury product one wouldn't eat every day. But they also talk about the food they most missed in Britain. Similarly, interviews with migrants who stayed in Britain after their contractual obligations had ended often talked about food to emphasize how difficult the adaptation process in Britain felt initially. What it felt like to receive a parcel filled with favorite German products, which represented so much more than simply food. In the new environment, the familiar smells, textures, and tastes were shortcuts to prompt memories of something, someone, or somewhere back home. These examples seem probably a little strange from today's perspective, where nearly everything can be bought in Britain's capital, where even Hermann the German offers the legendary German sausages, and not just to German customers. And yet, if we look at the items in this exhibition, we notice that many of the objects are linked to food and drink. The pork bone, the bamboo, the lunchbox, the jam pot, the traditional Melita filter, the coffee cup and saucer, and the recipe book all seem to suggest that memories around food and drink are still important to today's migrants. Now coming to the end, but what my historical mini excursion meant to show is that the things migrants kept or could not keep are closely linked to their very personal biographies and identities, and taken as a whole, may show us the circumstances under which migrants left their countries, the reasons for leaving, and the time at which their migration happened. Luckily, today's exhibits are all linked to easier migratory circumstances, not shaped by flight or poverty. Many of the items we see here will have been part of a larger collection of things shipped over or brought in by many of the frequent trips made perhaps with German wings or Ryanair. When we listen to the stories linked to them, they go way beyond their pure materiality as simple passive objects or disposable commodities. They carry personal memory of home and self and may therefore be precious to their owners. The physical journey filled the objects with meaning and transformed them as ties between the old and the new home. Thank you very much. Enjoy the exhibition. Thank you.